Welcome, everyone, to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I am Lori LeBay, the host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks. Uh, we get a lot of new listeners all the time, so I'd just like to tell you a little bit about us. Um, basically, we're an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort all around the world. And we believe that by joining forces and sharing knowledge and just having everyday conversations about life with dementia and caring that we're going to be able to remove some of the stigmas attached to memory loss and help those diagnosed and dealing with this disease disease continue to live with purpose. So I appreciate you joining us. Um, I also need to thank all of our listeners, too, because one of our core beliefs here at Alzheimer's Speaks is about collaboration, and we really think the only way we're going to win this battle against dementia is to work together. And I know that that philosophy is working because of all of your likes and clicks and shares um, of Alzheimer's Speaks resources. You see, we were named the number one influencer online regarding Alzheimer's, according to ShareCare and Dr. Oz. And that happened because you took those few seconds to share with your Facebook friends, your Twitter tribe, your Pinterest pals, um, and your LinkedIn colleagues. And it's really important to continue to pass information on regarding this disease, if it's Alzheimer's Speaks or another platform, because the more information we can have out there, the easier it will be for our sphere of influences to, to grab it when they need it. And, you know, everybody's on a different path with that. Um, but they need to feel that it's normal and it's accessible. And um, that's a really simple way to do that. So again, thank you for caring enough um, to share our information with your with your groups. I also want to invite you to be on Alzheimer's Speaks, um, one of our platforms, and that could be our blog, it could be the radio show, maybe it's our dementia chats where our panel of experts actually have dementia, um, or our conscious caring um, resources. Um, reach out to me via alzheimerspeaks.com, and I'd be glad to have a conversation. We want to include everyone. So that means if you are diagnosed, if you're thinking you're having symptoms, if you are caring for somebody either personally or professionally, maybe you're a writer, um, an author, maybe you are a musician or singer, movie director, researcher, advocate, um, Everybody is included. So would love to hear your story and your slant on the disease. Um, before I introduce our guest today, I do want to just throw out a couple of free offers to you. Audible, um, which is uh, where you can get um, books downloaded that you can listen to, has a free trial. And all you have to do is go to audibletrial.com forward slash 
That's audibletrial.com forward slash social. I said that wrong. Um, Audibletrial.com forward slash social for a free 30-day trial. Or if you are looking for a new system to kind of keep you organized with the IRS, uh, check out Fresh Books. You can get a free 30-day trial of Fresh Books by going to www gofreshbooks.com forward slash live gofreshbooks.com forward slash alive so let me introduce our guest today Um, I'm thrilled to have Dr. Lawrence T. Force with us he is a gerontologist and he has worked in the field of aging for over 30 years um, in a variety of different roles Um, he is also the founder and CEO of Age Plan, and a national, uh, which is a national advocacy and training organization. And he has recently launched a national organization of adult addictions and recoveries, um, whose mission is to raise awareness and treatment and prevent addictions in adults um, midlife and beyond. So this is a man who is just uh, filled with energy and knowledge, and I'm so glad he's able to join us today. And we're going to be talking, our topic today is going to be talking about the detoxing of caregivers. So um, welcome, Dr. Forrest. How are you today? I'm doing great, Lori, and thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, I was thinking about this as I was preparing for our discussion. When we talk about how technology has impacted the aging world, um, you and I have never met, but we've worked on a number of projects together. And how we met was really through the use of technology. Exactly. You know, I, I remember. I, I remember asking you to um, be a keynote speaker at a conference uh, that we uh, presented at the at the college. And there you were, you know, coming in through Skype <laughs> and uh, being a, being able to share your knowledge. So I think this is great, and I think uh, I know this is not an infomercial, but hear me clearly: the work that you're doing. And the mission that you've created is, is so vital and is so necessary. Oh, well, thank you. That's, that's so nice thank of you for this opportunity. Well, I'm very excited to have you with us today. And, um, you know, what I want to talk about, and, it, and before we kind of get off on our questions, it's always nice kind of for our audience to know, you know, have you been personally touched by dementia through family or friends? Um, it, it just gives people a little bit of a base as to where you're coming from. Well, I, I, you know, people ask me, uh, professionally, I, I present myself as a gerontologist, one who studies the process of aging. And my youngest son, I have two sons. My youngest son asked me one time, well, why did you ever get involved in, in, in aging? Well, it's the most basic thing, you know, something we all do. And then he asked me, what introduced? And then Nana surfaced. Nana was uh, my grandmother, my father's mother who lived with us after she became a widow. So from early on, I had been exposed to the needs and concerns and attitudes and behaviors of an older population. Um, I went on to um, undergraduate work, uh, studied psychology, graduate work, but I never really had thought about working in the Alzheimer field. And um, as I tell my students today, it's all about connections, and sometimes it's just being at the right place at, at the right time. And I had a former student who um, was an adult, and the course finished. Uh, I was teaching as an adjunct, and the course finished, and uh, he contacted me. 
and he was the uh, director of uh, personnel at a large, uh, well-known uh, re- uh, rehabilitation facility in, on the East Coast in New York. And he said, look, we're, we're going to start, this is back in 79, so we're going to start a medical model adult daycare program for Alzheimer's uh, patients, and I'd like to know if you'd like to run it. I said, I don't really know much about Alzheimer's disease. He said, uh, we'll teach you. So a career was born. So on a professional level, that's how I entered the field and then did years in public service working with people with intellectual disabilities and psychiatric disorders that had Alzheimer's disease. But as that was moving on, you know, I have an aging mother. My father died when I was 21. Uh, My mother just recently died last October. She was 97 years old, and she was um, diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Um, But again... The good news is, is that I had somewhat of a knowledge base of the system, but it was still fragmented. You know, uh, my brother and I took her to her general practitioner, a wonderful lady. My mother loved her. We said we have some concerns, you know, with memory loss and, you know, the possibility of Alzheimer's disease. So she excused herself with my mother and she took her into a back room. And 10 minutes later, she came back and she said, no, your mother doesn't have Alzheimer's disease. Uh, she knew where she was, who the president was. And I asked her to count back from 100 to zero by sevens, and she was able to do it. Well, my mother was in retail. She could have counted back by fractions if, if you had asked her. <laughs> and I, I said to my brother, we're out of here. So we ended up going to um, Burke Rehabilitation Memory Clinic, which I was familiar with, and um, ended up getting a proper diagnosis. And that's what's really necessary about getting a proper diagnosis. I think that... Um, my dissertation was on the, the impact of caregiving, on accessing adult uh, social model adult daycare programs. And I looked at the difference between husbands, wives, and daughters. And you could see the impact of, of, of uh, kingship. I mean, although my brother and I were caregivers, we weren't. Um, my father-in-law died five weeks ago. And my wife, uh, he lived down on Long Island, about 90 miles from us, with, with my mother-in-law. And my wife and her sister they were involved in a different process of caregiving. I mean, when, they, when you talk about caregiving from their perspective, it was different. And it was, that was so clear in the dissertation work that I did, that husbands had a whole different take on what they meant by caregiving. Caregiving for husbands began when they couldn't drive. Caregiving for adult daughters or sons began, they knew where it began. They, they, they knew what they were wearing. They knew when the knock came on the door that life was going to be different. But caregiving for wives, wives have a difficult time, at least that cohort had a difficult time in identifying what, what do you mean by caregiving? I've been doing this all along throughout my whole married life for this man. So it was completely different. I even see the relationship between my brother and I, what we did versus my wife and her sister-in-law. I never bathed my mother. I mean, there's a whole taboo about, you know, those types of, you know, ADL skills. We we made arrangements. We were present. We drove. We did this. We accessed doctors. We got the best care. But we never did the ADL stuff that I saw my wife do and my sister-in-law do with my father-in-law. It's mm-hmm. a whole different it's a whole different head. Can and you, how this all came. Oh, I, I was just going to ask you to explain ADLs because a lot of people don't know what that means. Activities of daily living. Mm-hmm. So things like dressing, things like toileting, things like preparing food. You know, there are measures that we use in standardized tests 
to look at activities of daily living, which are called ADLs, or instrumental activities of AD, ADLs, which are IADLs, which are things like the use of the telephone, being able to use transportation. So the ADL skill set is one of the things we look at when we start to see how Alzheimer's disease compromises the functioning ability of the person. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, and, and how this all came about, you know, and, and the work that I started to do, you know, on the writing called The Detoxing of Caregivers, you know, Key Tips for Survival, Strength, and Patience, was when we had made plans um, at the end of December to go to Florida for a couple of days of rest. And then things started to spiral. And uh, we're exhausted. We're driving back and forth. We're being present. We're, uh, my father-in-law ended up uh, end-staging his life dying in his own home. There was a lot of hands-on type of thing. And we decided that um, it would be best that uh, we not go for that, uh, that trip. Mm-hmm. And as I was sitting there, uh, you said in my bio, I have an interest and have uh, been involved in launching this national organization of adult addictions and recovery for people over the age of 40, 40 and above. And what I started to realize is the parallels between how the caregiver feels or how the person feels that is involved in the Alzheimer world in being present and the addiction world being present. I mean, the thing that I'm always taken by is the fact that in Europe, there isn't even such a thing as a caregiver. Uh, the word that's typically used is a carer. It's not a, it's not a formal role. You ask adult children about caregiving, they can tell you. But as I said, you ask wives in particular about caregiving, they're not really sure what you mean. Because they've been doing this you know, for quite some time. And what really hit me that night back in December of 15 is I was supposed to be sitting at the Kennedy Airport, but instead I'm, I'm sitting in a Starbucks 90 miles away. And the reason is because of the fact that we made a decision which cost us not only emotionally but financially in making a last-minute decision of not going, um, that, that we weren't going to go, that we needed to be present. And what I started to realize is the similar patterns. Um, because in my private practice, what I see is, you know, Adults coming in, you know, they have patterns of addiction. Typically, they're worn down. They're exhausted. They're scared. They're overwhelmed. They're unsure of the future. But then all of a sudden, I realized that that seemed to be very parallel to some of the individuals that were coming in that I see that are caregivers, being worn down, being exhausted, scared, overwhelmed, and not sure of the future. And what I argued for in that little essay was the fact that advocated for is um, the detoxing of caregivers. You know, that if if there are things that we can learn from other fields. I can even see it in the intellectual disability field, the the patterns of care that we can learn that can be helpful for people that are older or dealing with behavioral issues for people that have psychiatric disorders or intellectual disabilities. And you see one of the things happening now in nursing homes is that they're overwhelmed by the fact of, you know, how do I go about dealing with the behavior management of somebody with Alzheimer's disease? The most embarrassing thing that happened to me, I worked for the public sector for years, for over 20 years. One of the most embarrassing things that happened to me was just before I I retired, is that we had an individual in New York with Pick's disease who was in a community living. Pick's disease, fast-acting form of dementia, has a hypersexuality component to it, has, you know, some aberrant behavior. 
and we needed to get them out of that community setting. And there was nowhere in New York that was able to handle him. So we had to transfer him to Massachusetts. That's an embarrassment. There's holes in all parts of the system, whether it be residential or, you know, day programs for how to deal with individuals that uh, are addressing behavioral issues with Alzheimer's disease. But there are lessons that we can learn from the work that is being done in other systems. Uh, years ago, um, director of one of these agencies that I worked for in the state contacted me and they asked me, did I see the, um, the profile that um, PBS did on Bill Thomas, Dr. Bill Thomas? Mm-hmm. And I hadn't. And that was way before downloadable links and stuff like that. So I contacted PBS and I ended up getting the video and looked at it and it was so powerful. It was so poignant. I mean, here's a man that, you know, he's running across the country, challenging nursing homes, tear down the walls, build small group homes. And part of it, and he's very public about this, is because he has two children that are severely disabled. And that's how he entered into that world of, you know, presence of care. And so I call him. And I, you know, Dr. Thomas, Dr. Force, a very powerful, you know, thing. I work for the state, you know, blah, blah, blah. I said, but um, can I, I said, when it's all said and done, though, I said, can I ask you something? And he said, yeah. And I said, what you're promoting with the development of these small group homes were very similar to the system that we have been using for years in the intellectual disability world of coming out, you know, deinstitutionalization, getting small group homes. And he said, um, can I tell you something? And I said, yeah. He said, that's what I am using. So there are lessons that we can learn in other settings about the things that are working well that we can then move into the arena that we're in. So whether it be intellectual disability patterns and aging, in this position, what I'm advocating for is let's take a look at how we go about caring for individuals that are overwhelmed, and then we detox them. We, we rehab them and we develop some type of follow-up, uh, you know, community-based outpatient service. Mm-hmm. We, we need, and, and that can be very powerful because that's what I'm arguing for here, that as practitioners and program developers and policymakers, we need to take lead in creating new frontiers and creative solution-based opportunities to provide presence and care for the struggling caregiver. I mean, this idea that you might be a caregiver, the chances are you're going to be a caregiver. Mm-hmm. The chances are, you know, I, I think now we're at the point of including caregiving as a developmental process of midlife and beyond. It's, it's rare if you're not going to be a caregiver. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, you have to be, you know, prepared for it. I mean, we're, we're in the mix. I mean, we have been, you know, when I think back, when did caregiving start, you know, for me? Um, you know, I've always been a son. So that's my first, that was my first role, not caregiver, but son. But when I started to have to get involved in a place that, you know, which I typically had not been involved, it was probably 17 years. So we're not talking a long weekend. We're talking about a, a big chunk of, of someone's life that you're actually devoting. I had a woman come to me in my private practice and she had such a powerful line and she had a husband that uh, was diagnosed uh, early on and and she came in and she had had hip surgeries and shoulder replacement and all this from lifting. And she said something to me, which was so powerful. She said to me, 
I've started to realize that I've, I've devoted more, I've devoted too much of my life to his care. Mm -hmm. That's a powerful statement. You know, I mean, you, you look, we all hear stories. I sat on the all the board. We, we all hear uh, you know, the, the local chapter. We all hear stories. Mm -hmm. You know, we have this, we have this expectation. I, I heard the story years ago, you know, this woman's diagnosed and she brings the family together prior uh, to uh, announcing that she's been diagnosed and she has them around the table in an elegant restaurant in New York and she raises her glass and, and thanks them in, in, on behalf of herself, thanks them ahead of time of what she knows that they're going to do for her. Mm -hmm. That's nice. And that's wonderful. But I've also heard the other side of the story where spouses have divorced the other person, you know, when they found out that the diagnosis was there because they just, they just couldn't do it. You know, I, I've heard the, the, the parts of the stories where, you know, it's, it's, it's like a double barrel shotgun. Mm -hmm. Years ago, I did a piece called uh, Adult Styles of Caregiving, Heroes, Martyrs, and Snakes. <laughs> and those were the patterns that I saw. You know, the heroes did it because it had to be done. They just did it. The martyrs did it, and they let everybody know it was being done. And the snakes just slithered away. But then I realized that there was another group out there that I had not captured in that title. And I rewrote the essay, and I called it Adult Style for Caregiving, Heroes, Martyrs, Snakes, and the Devastated. Because there are certain people that aren't present, not because they're snakes, but they just can't do it. They just can't watch the demise. You know, there are some people that can do it and they weave it right into their everyday life. And this is not a big deal. Other people assume the role and they let everybody know and everybody in the family and how they feel overburdened or taking them upon or whatever. There are other people that are absent because they've made a decision. I'm not doing this and they're out of there. But there are some people that just are not present, not because they're snakes. They just can't do it. They just, they're just not equipped for it. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to understand that, you know, and as we take this lead, you know, and start to argue for and advocate for support systems for caregivers, you know, and policies. I mean, there can be work policies. You know, I remember years ago when, uh, you know, companies were starting to be alerted to the fact that, hey, you know, um, if somebody's doing elder care, you know, we should be sensitive. And some of the major 500, you know, Fortune 500 companies were very sensitive. Work, you know, extension, work, you know, you know, changing schedules, the whole bit, being able to work from home. But one of the debates that came out of that is that's wonderful, okay, if you're providing care to an older person. But what happens if you've been sitting there for years as a good, solid employee and you've been providing care to a child that's now 20 who has intellectual disabilities. And you're not getting a dime off. You're not getting a, a minute off. You're being held to, even though you're caregiving, okay, you're being held to a, a system that everybody else is being held to. But now, you know, the elder care button has been pushed. And now all sorts of bells and whistles are going off. There's something to be said about that. You know, as advocates, we need to, you know, argue for, things that are equitable. Things aren't equal in this country. We have different access to services. We have different access to insurance, resources, the whole thing. But things have to be equitable, meaning that if it's available to one, it should be available to all. And I think as we start to look at this thing of caregiving, you know, I think we, we have to somehow get the message out there 
and, and providing care to people with Alzheimer's disease. But this is a normative process of development now. Mm-hmm. You know, insurance companies should be sensitive to it. One of the biggest block, blocking points we have across this country are zoning boards. Okay, we're a local zoning board where you want to ramp up your house and reconfigure it so you can take your parent in that has some type of uh, dementia. And the next thing you know, you're being hauled into court because you violated a 1930 zoning, uh, zoning ordinance that said you can't have two families in one house. I mean, I think that's where we really have to go with policy. I think that, you know, as we're starting to look at this, we realize that the caregiving is a personal process. It's uh, interpreted uniquely. Each family system, every family system has self, and each family system handles it differently. Some families rally around. Some families, uh, I've seen families holding each other, crying in the parking lots of nursing homes. I've also seen family members brawling in the parking lots of nursing homes because it has the ability to either bring families together or fragment them. I think that we have to recognize that there are other systems that we can learn from. We don't have to create a separate standalone network, you know, and the system that I'm looking at is let's take a look at the addiction world and see how addiction and recovery have really started to, you know, make some real inroads. I mean, one of the things, and see if there are parallel applications into the Alzheimer's world. Uh, the beauty of, of, of where I sit as a practitioner and researcher is that I can have across my career, I can have different interests without looking or feeling like I'm, you know, what are you doing? So, yes, I spent a lot of time working in aging and intellectual disabilities and aging and Alzheimer's disease. And now I'm interested in aging and addictions. And it's exciting because you can get to see how these things, you know, the, the parallels among, among the systems, the things that we can learn so, you know, from other systems. So can you give us some examples of the, uh, you know, addiction side versus the Alzheimer's caregiving side where you, where you might see some parallels? The addiction you... side, you know, the addiction side, it's all about, you know, bringing people together. It's about, it's about detox, stopping it, you know, finding the person where they are, getting the treatment that they need, okay, detoxing them, stopping the crisis as best as possible, moving them into some type of, you know, rehabilitation. I'm not advocating to, you know, take caregivers out of their world and rehab them for 30 days in, in you know, some someplace like uh, by the seaside. But there are themes that we can, that make sense. You know, the addiction world talks about, you know, detox, talks about rehabilitation, talks about fellowship, talks about community-based recovery, 12-step programs, surrounding yourself with, so caregiving can be very isolating. Okay, you know that as well as I do. Some family and friends, they rally around you. Others, they're long gone. You know, they just, they're, they're just not there. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, as, as you start to look at this, one, one of the things that I've developed in my private practice, and I would encourage you and your listeners to, to take a look at this, uh, NOAA, N-O-A-A-R dot org, this national organization, because one of the paradigms we're using in that is a treatment approach that um, I developed. Probably start, uh, how it started is I was walking down the street of uh, Manhattan in 2003. I was staying in the city overnight, going over to do a conference on Alzheimer's disease in Sweden. 
it was a spring night, beautiful night at that point. I would smoke an occasional cigar and walking down the street 10 o'clock at night, going, walking away from the hotel for about an hour or so, and boom, it hit me. And what hit me was the question I've been thinking about. Why is it that some people can make life look so easy and other people, it becomes everything is complicated? Now, whether it be whatever parts of life, whether it be caregiving or whatever, I mean, I have friends that have dealt with horrific life events and they've been able to master them and move forward. I also have friends that I've seen, whether it be their desk, their car, their life, their dining room table, everything is a problem. Everything is in chaos. Mm -hmm. And what I started to realize is that in the psychological theories to date, it's all been about stages. We all look at, you know, what the person is doing in the stage of childhood and adolescence, and then we move up to adulthood. All the theories, the great theories of Erickson or whether it be Freudian or whatever, they all have stages as though it's linear, that it's like a little little snapshot and everybody's moving. But no one really talks about what's happening across the landscape, the width, okay, the, what I call dimensions. Mm-hmm. And what I started to realize is that, when I, look, when clients come in, I tell them, whether they're dealing with caregiving issues or whether they're dealing with addiction issues, I tell them, look, number one, I'm not your hero. Mm-hmm. Number two, I, I'm not here to fix you because you're not broken. Okay, you're not broken. You're dealing with some developmental stuff and everything passes. So let, let's exhale. And what I've argued for this, this theory that I, I've created is called the theory of dimensionality, meaning that there are different dimensions that occur across life. And what I'm saying here today to you is that caregiving is a, is a dimension of midlife and beyond. And it doesn't mean it just starts in midlife. I have some college students that are providing caregiving or secondary caregiving status to their parents or grandparents. But in this theory of dimensionality, I've created a practice intervention because it's not just theoretical, and it's called dimensional solution-based treatment. And what that dimensional solution-based treatment argues for is let's move away from the traditional paradigm of biopsychosocial, and let's talk about what the the traditional, what what, what really is happening. Somebody comes in for psychotherapy, it is useless if they're not willing to make changes in other parts of their life. So one of the things that in this dimensional solution-based treatment has created this term holistic triage. But yeah, what you're doing is you're paying attention to the cognitive therapy. You do, I, I do a little imagery stuff, little hypnotherapy stuff with them. But then I want them to work with a nutritionist. And I want them to belong to some type of exercise program on a regular basis. So it's, it's the cognition. It's the energy and it's the movement because I cannot, I'm not powerful or magical enough to be able to change the person. But what I can do is I can encourage them to increase activities or patterns into their life where they will start to feel differently about themselves. Therefore, they will start to feel differently about the events around them or the people around them, whether or not they're dealing with addiction issues or caregiving issues. So a person comes in, I I practice short-term work. I see them maybe six, eight times. I want them to see me twice. I do some guided imagery. I do some psychotherapy, clinical hypnotherapy stuff. Then I want them to go and see this nutritionist. I like this nutritionist. I've been to nutritionists who are really not practicing what what their profession is. I've been to nutritionists that are not caring for themselves, eating cookies in front of me, telling me to stay away from the white bread. That's not what I think is effective. 
what I think is effective is being a practitioner of, of, of practicing, doing what you say that you're, what you think works. So I want them to meet with this practitioner, this nutritionist. They don't want to meet with that one. They meet with one of their own. Mm-hmm. Then I want them to meet with this person that really emphasizes yoga. I don't care if it's yoga, Pilates, get a golden retriever where you can walk every day. But you can't come in continually saying how bad you feel about feeling bad while you're eating 16 bags of potato chips and drinking 14 Cokes a day. There's no magic here. Mm -hmm. You know, I've seen seen people that will run down to a drugstore like they're on fire because they're going to get a medication that's been prescribed. But you say, hey, listen, why don't you go get a massage once a month with your wife? Or why don't you go, you know, go for a walk three times a week? People, if if you really want to change, you can change it. And what I'm seeing is that the patterns that occur in the interventions that occur in the the world of addiction, let's get get rid of the word addiction. Let's talk about the caregiver that's coming in with stress, Mm -hmm. that's, that's that's eating, you know, out of control or not eating properly or not paying attention to themselves mm-hmm. or not. I mean, at some point you can't care for somebody else. If you're not caring for yourself, that's not science. That's not, that's, that's a simple, whatever. It's simple. It's common sense. And I think that, you know, if you can start to think about, and I don't care, I'm not talking to you about the fact that you should go take a 28 day cruise. That's not possible when you're in the mix. But maybe a 28-minute walk. Mm-hmm. Maybe you know uh, somehow get involved in some type of, of exercise. I, I, I go to the gym every day. Okay, I've been doing it for the last three years. Okay, I'm 63 years old. Somebody asked me today, "Why do you go to the gym every day?" I said, "To keep my youngest guy off my shoulders." Okay, because he was all over me. Dad, you got to do exercise. You got to do. Ex- I got to tell you something, Lori. It has been world change it. I have gym buddies now. It, it's the socialization part of it. I do. Uh, look, I'm not Arnold Schwarzenegger, but the fact is, it, I really look forward. It's part of my daily routine now. Mm-hmm. And the fact is that I think that if you know, you know, you're going into surgery, you have to really, you know, do certain things in order to prepare yourself to get ready for it. I don't think caregiving should be a surprise. I think you have to prepare for it. You know, I think you have to do things early on to, like, you know, bolster yourself because you know and I know. I mean, there were a lot of times that I was sitting, <laughs> I forget the time, my mother was in a hospital, I don't know, 60 miles away from where we lived. I said, to her, why don't you come live with us? She's like, I'm not going to the country. She was, you know, very, <laughs> very close to New York City. I'm driving back and forth, stuck on a, a parkway, eating like a cold sandwich. I walk into her room at the hospital and she's sitting there with the menu because she's going to order her food for tomorrow. And she's got this steaming hot plate sitting there. Mm-hmm. I started to laugh, you know, because I'm eating a half eaten bagel and, and she's figuring out that she want carb, what carbs does she want with her star? You know, it, 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 it can wear you down, you know, and I think, um, you know, I mean, one of, I mean, one of the biggest you know, I mean, look, my mother died. She's 97 year old little Irish guy. I lost one of my biggest fans. I will never get over the death of my mother. I will never get over the grief and loss of her. Mm-hmm. But what I've learned how to do is try to live alongside of it. You know, the fact is that as we're speaking right now, my wife is stuck on some parkway coming back from Long Island because she had to go down and take her mother 
you know, to the doctors for some type of, uh, you know, evaluation. Mm-hmm. We're in the mix. It's, it's who we are today. Well, I think one of the things that you're really pointing out is, you know, you're talking about addiction and you're talking about Alzheimer's and you're talking about medications and, and really you're talking about patterns of behavior and patterns of behavior can be changed to a certain extent. Um, but I think in society, we, we, um, are taught to believe on a subconscious level that it's not our fault. And I'm not saying that Alzheimer's is somebody's fault. Don't get me wrong there. But when it comes to um, addictions and, and things like that, um, I think we have a little bit more control than, than what we like to believe sometimes. And it can be those little baby steps. And when it comes to, to Alzheimer's and dementia, we're taught to believe that they can't connect and that they don't remember us. So why show up? Um, but, you know, those patterns of behavior can be changed through subtle little things where all of a sudden we see, oh, my gosh, there is a connection. Oh, my gosh, this does make a difference. Oh, my gosh, this I can control. This I can participate in where we can't control it all, but it gets us focused on who we are and and what are our abilities and how does that affect us. Like even when you mentioned going to the gym you know, you, you went basically to get your younger son off your back (laughs) and yet, and yet he taught a brilliant lesson by pestering you enough so that you saw the impact that that had on your life. It wasn't just about exercise. It was about social engagement. It was, you know, about probably feeling um, healthier on, on probably physical, mental levels, all of those types of things, but it, it becomes a pattern um, of your life and those patterns control our behaviors and our outcomes. And, and I don't think that we look at those things seriously, um, as seriously as we should. Um, the other thing that came to mind when you were talking about, um, addiction and dementia and, and, you know, the different things that are used. Um, one of the things I hear from people all the time um, is with our memory cafe, oh, this kind of reminds me of an AA meeting, you know, because people are coming together in community. It's not about embarrassment. It's about being your authentic person, the good, the bad, the ugly, and you can you can share it all and still be safe and still be supported and allowing people to be wherever they are um, and, and helping lift them to move forward. Um, but it's not really one helping another. It's everybody helping one another, you know, so no one's better than, than another, you know, it, it's that but, you e- know, I mean, equal but, ground. But you and I can, you and I could speak for hours because we understand each other because mm-hmm. we've been there too. Yep. You know, I tell somebody that hasn't been a caregiver about some of the feelings I've had or some of the, you know, uh, issues or vignettes or whatever. They're looking at me like, like they've landed on Mars. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I saw this uh, clip not too long ago, about a month ago. And it was a summary of this uh, statement of this article. And it said, hey, look, smoking, bad, try to stop. Red meat, bad, try to stop. But more important than eliminating smoking and eliminating red meat is the importance of the power of socialization. That if you want to create and enhance longevity, it's all about meaning and purpose and staying connected. You know, we know that. 
I mean, the fact is that, you know, this idea of isolating, and there's a lot of stereotypes out there too. You know, I mean, I'm not against nursing home, nursing home care. Okay. I mean, it's not like all, all nursing home care is bad. That's not true. Mm-hmm. Okay. Some of it is, is wonderful for the person because of the socialization process that they lived on their own. I'm not, I don't believe that, you know, once a diagnosis occurs, it's a knee jerk reaction, but I don't think anything in the community should be taken off the table as a possible option. Mm-hmm. You know, because I've seen more people die in isolation where families have tried to keep the person at home when, in fact, they, they, they don't, they're not equipped to do it. They don't want to do it. The person didn't want to be do it. They were concerned about the burden on the family, and they were completely isolated. Mm-hmm. And it's almost similar to the days of deinstitutionalization when we thought, oh, let's deinstitutionalize everybody into the community, only to find out that the communities, communities in some cases were more isolating than the institutional grounds and the institutional systems. Mm-hmm. So there are lessons. That I think the takeaway, you know, and I really appreciate this opportunity to have this discussion, but there are lessons that we can look at from other systems. You know, and what's worked, and then we, you know, you, you pick and choose what works, and you leave, you know, you leave the rest. Yeah. yeah. You know, but I think this idea of just like caregivers should not be surprised that they're going to be caregivers. I think all individuals should not be surprised that the chances are if they live longer, they're going to be possibly wrestling with some form of dementia, and how are they going to handle it? Mm-hmm. I know for a fact that where I live, there's zero way that I'm going to be able to age in place. I grew up in a little. I grew up in a city right outside of Manhattan. I could have lived and died, walked and died. I could have. I could have shot, died, everything in the area that I lived in. Now mm-hmm. I live 90 miles from New York in a much more rural setting. There's zero chance that I'm going to be able to age in place here once I'm no longer able to drive. I, I got that, and I don't want my kids wrestling me down the street trying to get my car keys away from me. <laughs> so I know that at one that at one point when I was 16, I was uh, in per- I, I was had the privilege of driving, but I know at some point I'm going to probably have to give that privilege up. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, I'm probably going to have to change the situation of where I live so I can access community, you know, uh, public transportation. No big deal, no surprise. Mm-hmm. So I think that you know, as a society, is the benefit of aging. You're living longer. But as a society, I think we have to prepare to live longer in a, in a more productive way mm-hmm. and not be so surprised by these things that occur to families. Yep, I, I agree. Well, I can't believe this hour has just uh, flown by, Larry. Um, no. How can, how can people get a hold of you? What's the best way for them to, to get a hold of you? Well, they can drop me an email. Um, the email address is uh, dr. Dr. D-R-L-T Force, F-O-R-C-E at Gmail. They can follow me on uh, Twitter, uh, D-R Force, or LinkedIn, uh, same thing. Um, but I'm available. UNOT has reached me, and, and I look forward to continuing this discussion. Wonderful. I really do. You're doing, you're doing great work, Lori. And I'm gonna, as I said at the beginning, that's not an infomercial. That's, the, that's, that's straight out. You're doing great work. Oh, well, thank and you. And anything I can help to, to promote it, let me know. Well, I appreciate that, and I, I love the work that you are doing as well. And, um, you know, I hope we'll have some collaborations here in the future. So that would be love wonderful. That. Great. Beautiful. Okay, thank you. All right, Lori. You. Many, many thanks. Thank you. Um, All right, bye I, now. 
Bye-bye. Again, for our listeners here, uh, don't forget to uh, take advantage of your free trials for Audible. Um, uh, it'll be audibletrial.com forward slash social, where you can check out 180,000 titles to choose from for some great reads. Uh, Sunday night, you might want to check out Apples to Apples uh, here live on Alive in Social. And I just want to note some of our past shows that we had. Um, on Tuesday, we had um, the author of the book entitled Calmer Waters, The Caregiver's Journey Through Alzheimer's and Dementia. That's Barbara Cohn. Uh, we had a really interesting conversation. Her book is loaded with great, great resources. We also had the uh, co-founder of GrandPad on, which is a technology that helps families connect in a comfortable fashion. And then we discussed uh, sports concussions and dementias. Um, our last Dementia Chats was on July 12th, and we discussed the impact of words. And we just talked about the words dementia and demented, and also advocacy and how those with dementia are planning on kind of passing the wand on to the next guy um, to step up and, and keep their work going. On June 28th, uh, Dementia Chats, we discussed the importance and the impact of routines um, and some travel tips. And our next session will be July 26th, and that is open to the public. It's free. So if you're public or professional, um, please check that out. out. And then our last caring, uh, conscious caring resource was with uh, founder Vince Zangaro, and he is the uh, founder of the Alzheimer's Music Fest, which will go live August 6th down in the Atlanta area. If you're going to be in Iowa in August, I will be down there August 10th. We're going to be doing a free screening of His Neighbor Phil at the Mind Frame Theater in um, Dubuque. And I'll also be speaking at the Northeast Iowa Community College down there. Um, last, I just want to point out a couple of articles you might be interested in on the blog. Um, Kevin Wu wrote an article about Pat Summit um, since she just passed here. There's a beautiful poem that was submitted by somebody in our community called uh, 56 Years, and it's a daughter writing about her journey with her mom. And Carol Larkin had a great article on kind of some spooky statistics on the lack of health care staff to meet our aging demands. If you are um, dealing with somebody with dementia and you're worried that they might wander, you may also want to check into the Caregiver Alert Center, and you can find them on our homepage. Um, it's under $15 a year to be set up and ready to go for uh, just in case of an emergency because you just quite never know. In the meantime, uh, sign up to be a member on alzheimerspeaks.com. That way you can go ahead and access all of our free tools as well. We'll talk with you next week. Thanks, everyone. Hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.